Good morning. I want to welcome you again to Central Presbyterian Church, where we seek transformation through the renewing work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're studying our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we're at chapter 2, verses 15 to 21 this morning. And while you're turning in your Bibles to that passage or looking in your worship folder, let me ask you a question about rest. What do you consider rest? Or this physical or spiritual, emotional rest? Ultimately, I think we feel that we have rest when the job is done. When expectations have been fulfilled, when there's nothing left to do in the moment, then we feel the freedom to rest. And so therefore, what gives your soul rest? What work is done to bring you soul rest? In our passage this morning, it's a continuation of the Apostle Paul laying out the differences between the real gospel and what the Judaizers had begun to teach in this church in Galatia. They had taught that in order to find rest, to find real favor of God, then you must perform. You need to believe in Jesus the Messiah, yes, but also you must add to it Jewish ceremonial, Jewish religious activity. And so as we come this morning to this this question of rest in our hearts, what really brings it? Is it performance or is it promise? Something completely different. Galatians chapter 2 Verses 15 to 21, let's pray as we turn our hearts to the word. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Open our hearts that we would behold Jesus and by your spirit enable us to follow after him and trust him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul wrote, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Perhaps you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Maybe it's been quite a while since you have seen it, but in that movie, Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, takes a squad of soldiers to go rescue Private James Ryan. His three other brothers had already died in the war, and Private Ryan was behind enemy lines in France, and Captain Miller takes a squad to go rescue him and bring him home. Late in the movie, the squad finally identifies Private Ryan and they begin to bring him home and Private Ryan asks Captain Miller, how can I say thank you? How can I say thank you for what you're doing for me, what you're doing for my mother? Captain Miller at this point was lying shot about to die in his last moments and he uttered some of the most haunting words ever to be spoken, I think. Captain Miller said, earn this earn it. In other words, you owe your life now. 
to seek to earn this gift that you've been given. Live your life in such a way that your life in exchange for all of these other soldiers was a good deal. You're justified by being a right and good sacrifice. Do you feel that weight? That weight of asking whether my life is good enough, whether I'm a good exchange for all these other good men, and the only answer that comes is earn it. Haunting words. Words that can drive a person to cycles of comparison and failing and guilty in a weary soul. What do we do with that weariness when we have that sneaking suspicion that we aren't good enough? When someone's going to find out that we aren't enough, what do we do with that, that soul weariness? Some of us look for ways to be distracted or to anesthetize the pain. Some of us turn to alcohol or drugs to just have a moment's freedom from that pain that we experience. Others of us might turn to pornography, looking for ways to feel desirable, to feel desirable or beautiful in the eyes of someone, just even if it's through a screen, just for a moment. Some turn to being do-gooders. I'm going to have the good in my life outweigh the bad, and, and then my life will be worth it. But friends, none of those will work. None of those are going to count. None of those are going to give you a sense of rest, and we're all searching for rest. We long for it. We've been created to enjoy it. So where do we find it? Where do we find that peace, that wholeness of life, that, that rest that God desires for us? Paul's answer is justification. He's not used that word yet in this letter, but the concept has been all over the first two chapters. And then in verse 16, he uses the word three times. Justification is a legal term. It's a, a judicial term. It's the language of verdict, the opposite of condemned. It's, it's conferring a status of not guilty, an acquittal before some judgment bench. And in the Bible, that, that justification speaks of before God's judgment seat, God's verdict, his judgment to declare us clean, declare our sin pardoned and receive the righteousness of Christ as if it were our own. And that can only be received through faith, through relying upon and, and trusting in what God provides. We can't rest on what we do, what we produce. The, the good deeds of our own lives are never enough. And if you try to live your life to have enough good deeds, you will always feel behind because you will be. Never an ability to do enough good in the eyes of a holy God. We must trust in Jesus. And in trusting in Jesus, we receive the same fate as the Lord Jesus. The judgment is spoken. You may have heard justification described before as just as if I'd never sinned. That's a pretty good definition. It's true. All of our guilt being condemned in Jesus, nailed to the cross in Jesus' body, as if we hung on that cross together with the Lord as he paid the complete and final cost for all of our sin and every bit of our rebellion, our standing before God. We are positional in, before God just as if I'd never sinned. But like the old infomercials would say, but wait, there's more. There's more to it. Although we, re we receive the gift of God of all of our guilt pardoned because of Christ, we also through faith receive the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect record of obedience given to us through faith. So our standing before God is just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I'd always obeyed. That's justification. And that's the key to rest for your soul. 
How so? Well, if we want to find that rest for our souls, we begin by embracing our need for Christ. Verse 15, Paul's continuing a a charge against Peter from verse 14, which we studied last week, that Peter says, "If, if you've lived in freedom when you were in Antioch, when you came to this church with Jews and Gentiles together and you lived in freedom, you didn't follow all the Jewish law, you didn't follow all the ceremony, and now when your friends from Jerusalem show up, Peter, you become a hypocrite. You try to push everyone, all these non-Jews, to become Jewish before they could receive God's favor. As if following these laws would make them right in God's eyes. And Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. That's not where hope is found. That's not justification, Peter. He goes on to say, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What does he mean by that? Well, if we were to write it today, I think that the word sinners would be in quotation marks because there were some Jews that counted all Gentiles sinners. It was, a, it was an ethnic slur. It was a sneer against those people as if we're not like those sinners. We're not like those people over there because we're God's favored people. We belong. We are here by birthright. We are special in God's eyes through that. Now, there's some truth to it. Jews were God's favored people. He had made promises to them, covenants with them. He gave them the law as a manifestation of his character. But it was all given in order to lead them somewhere, to lead them to the Savior. In fact, the whole Old Testament was given to preparation for Jesus. It organizes these people around belonging to God, trusting in the Lord of deliverance through being led to a Redeemer, a Messiah who would come and pay the price that God's people could be renewed and all creation redeemed. The whole Old Testament is about being led to embrace Jesus, the Savior who would come and answer to the promise. But some Jews, including these Jewish Christians who'd come from Jerusalem, saw it differently. They thought their Jewishness offered them a a, a piece of pride It was their Jewishness that offered them symbols of belonging to God as if we have these and we're not like you. We belong to God, you don't. We aren't sinners like all of you are out there. Paul says we should know better. Verse 16, we should know better. We who are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know a person is not justified, not counted right with God by observing the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, remember, Peter, it's faith that saves Jews and Gentiles alike. It's faith that saves us and them because our religious heritage, our religious duty, all of these ceremonies piled one on top of the other can't save anybody. Being better than the sinners out there will save no one. Again, in verse 16, by the works of the law, all those religious works, all those ceremonies of Judaism, by those, no one will be justified. I don't care who you are, Paul is saying. No one can be religiously observant enough. No one can be good enough to merit standing before God. For all of us, it's through faith. Now, you're not probably living in a world where we're segregated by Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew. But I would dare say that every one of us has someone who fits in the category of sinners. Somebody who's out there. Somebody that we see ourselves separated from. And yet Paul says here, we all are in the same boat. 
We all need the same grace. We all need Jesus to save us because the law condemns all of us. Look at verse 19. Through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. Meaning the law gave God's holy, holy character and expression in his law. It's like a mirror. This point is set up and we see ourselves in it. We see ourselves comparing ourselves against God's perfectly holy character in the law. And when we see ourselves in the light of God's perfection, we see our sin, we see our wickedness, we see our brokenness, we see all the ways that we don't measure up in the light of this holiness. And if that law is shown to us, it humbles us and leads us to only one place. It leads us to a crucified Savior. It leads us to a cross where all of our sin is punished because we all have to realize none of us measure up. There's no place, friends, for sneering at sinners out there because we're all in the same boat. Christians, I hope you realize that there is no ground for us to sneer at the world, taking for pride all of our good deeds and all our religious observance. Because the truth is that would-be saints and sinners have this in common. We desperately need a crucified Savior. doesn't matter how good you've been. doesn't matter what you've done or what you haven't done. Are you willing to embrace your need for Jesus? Because that's where rest for your soul begins. Not in trying to stack yourself up against somebody out there, some group of sinners that you love to compare yourself favorably against. There's no life there. There's no rest in trying to be better than. I heard a pastor a few years ago make a similar point, and I'm going to embellish the story that he told of an imagined conversation between an angel at the gate of heaven and the thief who was crucified next to Jesus. Now, I know that there's not an angel in heaven to let people, I know that, but just go with the story. That's what sermon illustrations are about. So this angel asked this thief who just moments earlier had been crucified next to Jesus. And the angel says, hey, what are you doing here? And the guy said, I don't know. I have no idea. And the angel went, wait a minute, what do you mean you don't know? What are your qualifications? What, what Bible studies have you been in? I said, I mean, I, I, none. I, all right, well, what about, where were you baptized? Where did you participate in this? I said, well, nowhere. What, what member of a, uh, of a church, what synagogue are you a member of right now? The guy shakes his eye, none. I says, okay, well, none of those are working. Let, let's go to theology. I'm sure you have your theology down. What do you think of Calvin's third use of the law? And I was like, I, I don't have any idea. I've never heard of the person. The angel asked, well, on what basis are you here? Why are you here? And the thief answered, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's my answer. The man on the middle cross told me today you will be with me in paradise and I believed him and then here I am right before these, before these gates. The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's my answer. That's our answer too, friends. Because of what Jesus has done, we are welcomed into heaven as Jesus is welcomed into heaven. That's our only hope. Not how many Bible studies we've been in, not how much we've given to the church, all the ways that we've served. All those are blessings. God uses all of those in our lives, but none of those are what separate us out as belonging to God. Especially not, well, I've lived a better life than that sinner down the street. 
Friends, the ground is level beneath the cross of Christ. We only come because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I've done. And you embrace your need of the Lord Jesus Christ. You embrace that you desperately need that in the same way that whoever fits in the category in your mind of the worst sinner out there. We both need the same remedy. If you can begin to agree with that, then you will find rest because no longer are you going to be depending on, I've been a really good guy. Nor will you feel set aside because I've been a terrible person. There's no way that I deserve being welcomed into heaven. You're right. None of us do, but we come because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, not because of what we've done. Let me just be as straight as I can with you. If when considering your standing with God, if you begin with I, well, I, I've done this, I've done that, I've, I've given this, I've, I've served in this way. If that's your hope, then friend, I have to tell you, you're lost. You don't know Jesus. If our hope is in what we have done, we are lost because the only answer is in the third person because of he, what he has done. Because Jesus took all of my sin. Jesus obeyed for me. He is my hope. What he did is my answer. Do you trust him? Trust in that Savior who loves you so much that he's taken all of your sin upon his own shoulders on the cross. And he gives you his perfect record of righteousness. And so God says, welcome home. Calvin put it this way. If we do not renounce all other hopes and embrace Christ alone, we reject the grace of God. Rest begins not by putting our hopes in what we've done, nor feeling set aside because of what we've done. Rest begins by embracing what Jesus has done for me. That's not where it ends. That's where it begins. It, it ends when, with resting on Jesus placing all of our weight, all of our trust, all of our hope on what Jesus has done. And I think a, a stool is a great image for that idea. What, what type of stool is the most stable? If you think of a stool with four legs, you know, one of them might be shorter than the others. And when you try to set your weight down upon it, it wobbles. It may be so wobble you fall over. Four is not a great stability. Two legs of a stool, it's not a stool. That's called a ladder. That doesn't work. But a three-legged stool is just right. A three-legged stool ensures that every leg is, is resting on the ground and we can place our weight upon it. It won't wobble. It's, it's stable. And what Paul points us to in this text is stability in Christ, a three-legged stool of the work of the Lord Jesus that provides stability for our souls, rest for our souls that will bear the weight of all of our sin. He says in verse 20, the life I live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. The life we live now, today, in the flesh, is a life of resting on what Jesus has done. What are these three legs of the stool that provide stability and rest for our souls? Well, the first one is the death of Christ. Look at verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ through trusting and relying and resting on what the Lord Jesus has done for us, all of our guilt has already been punished in Jesus. 
He was crucified for all of our sin. And as some theologians like Ritterboss put it, we are regarded by God as having hung on the cross together with Jesus. We are so joined together with him that he died the death that we deserve. He was our substitute. Christ was crucified in our place. He took what you and I deserve because of all of our sin and all of our rebellion. Justice has fallen, but it fell upon Jesus rather than on us. He's paid the price so that we are now washed clean by his blood. We are allowed to stand before a holy God because Jesus makes us clean by his death. So how does that provide rest? How does that provide rest for your soul or mine? Well, maybe you've heard some people in our culture say something like this. You don't have the right to judge me. Only God can judge me. You've heard people say that before? You know, there's a lot of truth to it, and yet that doesn't help. Because when we stand in the presence of a holy God, perfectly holy God, that's the guy you want to judge you? The guy who sees your heart clearly as it is, sees my soul clearly as it is. If if we're standing before the judgment seat of God, we're filled with terror because there's no hope for us outside of what Jesus has done. And what this doctrine of justification tells us is all the wrath of God, all of his righteous indignation at our rebellion and our sin is removed. Jesus has taken it all away. His wrath is so far removed that in Christ, God can't love you any more than he loves you right now. And because you're in Christ, he can't love you any less than he loves you right now. All the wrath of God, all the penalty for our sin has been fully and completely poured out on Jesus. There's no more left for us. If we've trusted in him, it can provide rest for our souls. But also, there's no more need to bargain with God. You ever try to bargain with God? Say, God, if you bless me, if, if you get me out of this mess, if you do this thing for me, then, then I will you fill in the blank. God, if you can rescue me, then I'll do something for you. You know that bargain that we sometimes make with God? We don't need it because the bargain has already been struck. Christ was the cost of God's eternal favor given to you and me. That's justification. The bargain's been made. Jesus paid it all. And so now when God takes stock of your life or my life, if we've trusted in Jesus, we're joined to him and we are justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Not guilty. There's a lot of weight that can come off of our shoulders when we realize that truth, I'm not guilty before God anymore. The second leg of that stool is the life of Christ. Again at verse 20. Paul wrote, no longer I who live, but Christ in me. That life of Jesus is exchanged for ours. His record of perfect righteousness, perfect obedience is given in exchange for all of our wickedness. And when we believe our life is so joined to Jesus, it's as though we are wrapped about with his righteousness. We are wrapped about in his perfection. And before God's judgment seat, we're justified just as if we've always obeyed. The truth is that every one of us will appear before the judgment seat of God. Every one of us. 
And we, if we ever try to plead our own merits, this is the kind of life I lived and I did more good than bad. If we try to plead my righteousness, my obedience, my deeds, then we will not be granted the gift of heaven because we stand condemned. The only way, the only plea that we can make is the merits of Jesus. I've been joined together with Jesus, the one who was perfect in my place. He fulfilled everything that you've expected of me, God. He's fulfilled it all and gives me his record as if I had performed it all. Everything a perfectly righteous person deserves, we receive through Jesus. So we can truly say that in Christ, it is just as if we've always obeyed. How does that provide rest? for our souls. We don't have to prove we're worthy anymore. We don't have to live our lives finding ways to prove our worth, to prove our value, because we are received by the creator and sustainer of heavens and the earth in Christ. We don't have to prove our worth anymore. And in relationships with one another, we don't have to pretend to be better than we are. We don't have to pretend to be perfect anymore, but instead we can admit our faults. We can admit the things that are in our hearts. We can admit our poor motives. We can confess them and repent of them because we don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to pretend that I'm I'm righteous. I don't have to pretend that I'm better than I am as if I'm like have a Teflon life. You know that kind of life? If you ever call out some sin in my life, sometimes we can't bear to tell the truth. We can't bear the the being exposed before the sight of someone else and we'll try to live that Teflon life and your accusation against me just rolls off my back. It's not my problem. You're not right about me. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to pretend to be perfect. You don't have to pretend to be better than you are, but instead, receive your righteousness in Jesus. I am who Jesus says that I am. I am what God says that I am. Unless we don't have to to track down all the unflattering reports in our lives. We don't have to have our lives tied up with what everybody thinks about me. Our worth is tied up in what Jesus has said, being worthy because Christ is our record of righteousness. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to track down every unflattering thing that somebody says about me. I know. I know that St. Louis is a small town. St. Louis is the largest small town in America, I think. And people talk. People talk a lot. I know. People talk. They will trash your reputation. They will gossip about you. They will slander you. But they also will tell the truth about who we are. Yet your reputation, your worth is hidden in Christ. You don't have to say I'm only as valuable as you can make me look good in what you say about me. My worth is hidden in Christ. I don't have to defend myself before everyone as if my life depends on what you think of me. But instead, when someone criticizes us, feel free to agree with them. Feel free to say, you know what? What you're saying about me is absolutely true. I'm sorry about that. And yet, if you looked inside my heart, you're going to find a whole lot more to be concerned about than what you just identified. There's a lot more in there that you don't know about. We don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to pretend that you're perfect or nearly perfect or even really good because Christ was perfect and righteous on your behalf 
And he gives you that record as if you'd done it all. That life of Christ is ours. We find rest for our souls by remembering the death of Christ, that God's not angry with us anymore. In the life of Christ, that God receives us, not because we've ginned up some sort of worth or perfection, or we've been good enough for him, but because Jesus was. And finally, the third leg is the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 20 again. Christ lives in me. That Jesus who was crucified was raised from the dead and now that living Christ is alive in his people. He's birthed in us that old I, the the old me who was enslaved to sin, enslaved to law, has been nailed to the cross with Jesus and now we're new creations in Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus, that old man has passed away and the new has come and the indwelling Jesus in you gives you strength gives you a power you didn't have before. His grace changes everything. His power is at work, enabling us to believe, giving us strength to resist our sin. It's Christ alive in me. It's that third leg of the stool. How does that provide rest for us? Well, maybe you've heard someone say before, God will never give you more than you can handle. You ever heard anybody say that before? It's a lie. It's a flat-out lie. God will give you more than you can handle probably every single day of your life. And our hope is not in handling what God throws at us in our own strength. Our hope is that Jesus is alive within us. Our resources aren't limited to our flesh or our ingenuity or our our self-reliance. The resources to deal what's thrown in our lives are bound up with Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead and now is alive within you. That's what gives us confidence, gives us power, gives us resources, gives us strength to deal with whatever comes our way. You don't have to live your life feeling defeated all the time because Christ is alive in you. He gives confidence that I'm able to change. I really am able to change. You you have the power within you by Christ's work to say no to sin. It's incredible. That's a huge victory, even if the temptation isn't ever removed. Even if you feel that pull of that sin you've been battling your whole life and it's still there and it never goes away. I know that feeling. Even if that feeling never goes away, Christ within you can still strengthen you to say no to that sin and yes to godliness. The life of Jesus is within you. You don't have to feel defeated because the Holy Spirit is able to bring change. He's able to bring strength far beyond what you have in yourself. Don't live your life feeling hopeless because if you trust in Jesus, the power of the Jesus who was raised from the dead lives within you. And it's also true for other people. We live with that conviction that other people can change too. There's nobody in your life who is too far gone, too far away that can't be brought to the Lord in the power of God's Spirit. There's no one. Parents, I want you to know that about your children. I want you all to know that about your friends, about your co-workers. There is no one who is beyond the reach of the Lord Lord Jesus Christ as if God's arm is too short to save. There's no one too far gone no one too far off from jesus 
Paul is exhibit A of that. Probably when Paul left on that road to Damascus as he was traveling there to arrest and kill Christians that he found in Damascus, you could have been forgiven for for thinking that Paul is as far away from God as he could possibly get. Certainly he's beyond the reach of the Lord. And yet, he was going to meet Jesus on that road. Every step he took, he was closer to Jesus than he'd ever been before. And yet, in our our eyes and our thoughts, he's so far away. And yet, Christ was right there. There's no one whom Jesus is unable to save. There is no one's life Jesus is unable to reach in and give you strength to follow him, strength to obey, strength to serve him. You don't have to live your life hopeless. It's where we rest, the death of Christ. God's not angry and filled with wrath toward you anymore. And the life of Christ, because you appear as Christ in his sight, and the resurrection of Jesus There are resources available to you you never imagined before. That's where we rest. Let me close with this. Movie Saving Private Ryan begins and ends in the exact same place. At the beginning of the movie, you see Ryan coming. He's at the end of his life. He's an old man, and all of his family comes uh, comes to Normandy. They come to the cemetery at Normandy. And you see him walking across this cemetery, and tears begin to fill his eyes as he looks at all these, all these soldiers who sacrificed their lives. And finally, he comes to Captain Miller's grave, and he, he kneels down and he begins to weep at Captain Miller's grave. And then the story's told. The story of this young man being saved by sacrifice of all of these soldiers. And then at the end, it comes back to the beginning scene. He's there on his knees, before Captain Miller's tombstone and he turns to his wife and he asks, have I been a good husband? Tell me, tell me I've been a good husband. Tell me I've been a good father. Tell me that their sacrifice was worth it. Have I been a good man? He's in such incredibly deep pain because he's still facing down that same question. Earn it, earn this. Can I ever live a life? to merit all these good men who gave their lives in exchange for mine. He's screaming, justify me. That's what he wants. Someone tell me that I was good enough, that the deal was good enough, because somewhere deep within he knows. He knows his heart well enough to know, I haven't lived good enough. I haven't been perfect. I haven't lived my life such that all these men's sacrifice was worth it. Your conscience is going to scream that at you too. It tells you you've not done enough to earn life. Agree. Agree with your conscience. It's absolutely right. You haven't. But the secret of rest is that Jesus has. Jesus has earned it. Jesus has done enough. And he's given it all to you to be received by faith and faith alone. Rest on his work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make us into a people who are willing to turn away from ourselves and all of our deeds and all of our 
all the wonderful things about our lives, to turn away from it all and to put all of our trust and all of our hope and all of our weight on what Jesus has done, what Jesus has been for us. Lord, lay hold of us when we scream out, justify me, and remind us that we have been justified in your sight by what Jesus has done. Make us a people of strength and confidence and hope because you are alive within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.